if you're halfway through a conversation, don't worry. There's more coffee in the pot, and there's plenty of chance to catch up at the end. Superb. Well, before I get into today's message, I do actually ha just have one more um, notice, that, uh, a news item that we want to bring to you, and that relates to our building project. Now, we're here on Ashley Road this morning, blessed by a building that we purchased and I had the chance to renovate a few years ago. Our uh, site up at Alder Road has uh, been in a building that is, is well beyond its, its usefulness, um, and, uh, and uh, the water goes through the ceiling in the, uh, in the winter. I'm afraid the... Um, the building just behind in the car park is on the verge of knocking itself down, which might actually do us a favour. But it's at the point now where really um, to be able to, to facilitate the mission that we feel God's called us to here in BCP, we need to build a new building. And if you've been here for any length of time, you'll have heard an update on this before. And we've put some material together for you, which you can find at the back, which gives you a little bit more information about what we're after. Essentially, we've gone out to tender and we've got some, uh, some people ready to do it. But what we need now is the money to be able to make it happen. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been standing up and asking you to think about what you might be able to meaningfully give to help um, towards this project. Now, it's so important that we build something that lasts and something that outlasts each and every one of us. Wouldn't it be so good to know that we've contributed to something that lives way beyond us in terms of being able to see the gospel preached in BCP and beyond for many, many years to come? And that's why we want to invest and make this facility all that it can be. The information in here gives you some, some, um, some information about costs, the sorts of money that we're after. And we're after, um, really, everybody filling out a pledge form. And the pledge form looks like this. And again, you can find them at the back if you haven't got one already. Just to, just to say what you might be uh, willing to give. We actually have asked for those pledge forms to be back on the 31st of October, which is two weeks today. So that's two more weeks to be prayerful about how you might be able to help contribute to, uh, to what we feel God's calling us to here. Um, we're also, this Friday, having a day of prayer and fasting because we really want to lean on God for this and want to believe um, that he's behind us in it as well. So we're, we're calling for uh, the church to come together to pray for the day this Friday and to fast. And that will culminate with a, a, a meeting, a prayer meeting at 7 o'clock at our older road site. If you've not been up there for a while, you can see the state of disrepair that it's in when you get up there, and it will, I'm sure, uh, as it does for me, help you to pray even more fervently for it. So if you've got any questions about any of that, if you read this leaflet and, and have some, want to ask any questions about money or anything like that, you please do come find me at the end. This is a really important thing that we're doing, and we want to make sure that we're as clear as possible in how we communicate about it. Um, so if you need any more information, come find me. But two more weeks for those pledge forms, and uh, we're really, really grateful for the support uh, in it. Now, with that in mind, we're moving into the last in our series on the seven churches of Revelation uh, this, this morning. And we're looking at the characteristics of these churches in Revelation, the warnings that are given, and what they can teach the church in Paul this morning. And the first three chapters of Revelation are mostly taken up with these letters, where our writer, John, has a vision from Jesus. And in this vision, Jesus gives him messages for the seven most significant churches in Asia Minor. It's like a bit of a report card for them. How are you doing? And Jesus is saying, I see you. I see the hidden stuff. And this is where it's going well, and this is where you need to do better. And this is what will happen if you keep going down this road. And that's the theme of these letters that we've been going through over the last seven weeks. And the title of today's message is A Lukewarm Church. It's perhaps the most quoted verses out of the words to the seven churches. And I want to dive in and have us read the passage together. It's Revelation 3, uh, starting in verse 14 and down to verse 22. 
And it says this, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor, uh, cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. Some strong words this morning that we're going to dive into. And I want to start just by addressing the point of who's speaking here. We're told at the very start in verse 14, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. The speaker here confirms himself as Jesus, the Amen, or in other words, the truth, the one who tells the truth. And he calls himself a true witness, the witness of all that God has done and the ruler of God's creation. Basically, from the first verse that we read this morning, it's hard to argue with Jesus in that context, isn't it, right? And so what he says to the church, most of the letters that we've read over the last seven weeks have a mixture of commendation and correction. They say, well done, and here's where you need to do better. But here, Jesus jumps straight to the problem. He knows their deeds. And to understand what's being said here, we need some background about the church in Laodicea. It's important to know about the city because this message is full of references to the church and references about the city that the church would have known really, really well because it was their city. They would have understood it. So, where is Laodicea? Uh, we've got a map here that uh, the seven churches have all been starred, and Laodicea is the one uh, in the bottom down here in the middle. Now, the fact that it's in the middle and not near any water, we're going to come back to in a second, but it was well known as the wealthiest city in a region called Phrygia, uh, which is, is kind of on a really important trade route in what's now modern-day Turkey. And the city was on the ridge of a valley. This trade route um, had three of the most important roads in Asia running right through the middle of it. So it was an incredibly wealthy city. It was kind of this, um, this hub of trade. It was really well known for three things in particular. Firstly, it was known for its banking establishments. Secondly, it was known for its medical school. It actually had these eye ointments that it created. So if you were in the Roman Empire and had an eye problem, you needed to go to Laodicea because the ointment was famous, right? That's what it was known for. And it was also known for its textile industry. One commentator called the textile industry in Laodicea the uh, original designer label, okay? It was the clothing that you wanted. It's the stuff that you wanted to get. There's a picture of what uh, Laodicea looks like there now on the screen for you to have a look like. But it was an incredibly affluent place. It was high wealth, high status, one of the wealthiest cities in the world. And it was also incredibly high on self-reliance. And we can see that from the context of the passage, but there's more as well. They were actually so self-reliant that when an earthquake shook the city and damaged it in around AD 60, they refused the outside help of the government. They refused the help of the Romans and they rebuilt it themselves. There's a Roman historian called Tacitus, and he wrote this. Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. 
They were a self-reliant, proud people, okay? That's the, the people that they were. And like I said, when we had that map flash up, it was also a city with a bit of a problem. Because unlike almost all cities, which were built on the time near water, near a spring or a river, somewhere where they had ready access to a water supply, it wasn't built near water at all. It had no meaningful water source. So its water was carried from an aqueduct, which was about six miles away from the city itself. Now, six miles away, the water was probably incredibly cool and refreshing and clean, but it had to navigate this six-mile journey through a stone pipe. And it's not like the water that Wessex water pump into our homes now. This was a very different journey entirely. This water went through stone pipes, through cliff tops full of dirt and mineral deposits around heavy, slimy, dirty rocks. And the water that it carried would have become incredibly compromised. The water, when it got there, was actually put through a sieve. And you can see a picture here of kind of this old rock that had a little bit of pipe going down it. That's, that's essentially how the water was carried to the city. And it had to be sieved to get, to get rid of all the, the rubbish that it picked up on its six-mile journey. It uh, wouldn't have been the cool, refreshing water of the source, but this kind of tepid, lukewarm disgusting, distasteful water that would have been left over by the time it was sieved and kind of made its journey to, to, the, to the cup that you were drinking out of. For us Brits, let me give you a little reference. It's like making a lovely cup of tea for yourself with pond water and then forgetting about it to the point where it gets just beyond the right temperature. You know when you taste it and you're like, oh, that is disgusting. Like that's, that's the sort of water we're talking about here. That's the water that they had to drink. It's gross, right? You know, when you go on holiday and they say, well, don't drink the tap water, get bottled water. Well, that Laodicea was like ground zero for that, okay? You do not drink the water when you go to Laodicea. It's disgusting. Not only would you, uh, would you not have liked the taste, but you'd have spat it straight back out. It's disgusting. And it's here that we get clarity about what's being said to the church. Back to the passage where it says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The church in Laodicea would have immediately known what that word lukewarm was saying to them because that lukewarm, tepid, disgusting water was a part of everyday life. That was the price you paid for living in that city, the disgusting water that came with it. Some translations actually use even harsher words. They say, it makes me want to vomit. Imagine that sort of a, a water. And imagine how devastating it would have been as the church in that city to hear that. You're lukewarm. You're like the water that you drink. It would have been this affluent church, a really big church in a big affluent city. If it was around today, it probably would have had its own TV channel, and it definitely would have had its own podcast, all right? This big church is what we're talking about. But Jesus here is saying, I know your deeds, and it makes me sick. They're being told that they were as, comp uh, as compromised as a church as the rancid water that was coming down those pipes. It's an utterly devastating thing to hear, and I, I want you to get the gravity of that. That sense that actually if you were in that church at that time and you read those words, you'd have been, oh, distraught. And the immediate question then becomes about how we apply it here. What does it mean to be lukewarm in our context? As one commentator uh, who on this passage put it this way, he hates it when Christians make great professions of faith but then follow up with cold apathy. He would prefer for us to be upfront about our spiritual lethargy than offer him a sickening mixture of fervent promise and half-hearted disobedience. God hates lying, even lies sung on a Sunday, and he's not impressed with our promises unless we prove them by our lives. He's telling you that your actions as a church must live up to the promises that you sing on a Sunday. Harsh words, isn't it? But it reminded me of one of my favorite TV shows. Has anybody ever seen a show called Flight of the Concords? 
It's one of my favorite comedy shows, okay? It's a really, really funny show. It's where these two New Zealand musicians, there they are, Brett and Jermaine, they come across from New Zealand to try and break America with their music. And in one episode, Brett writes a, a song for his new girlfriend. His new girlfriend's called Coco, and he's really besotted with her. And he writes this song called, I Would Climb the Highest Mountain. And it's a two-hour epic love ballad. Okay, that's how, that's how much he loves her. He goes on for two hours writing about this song. And then he asks his friend Jermaine for feedback. And so Jermaine picks up this song, I Would Climb the Highest Mountain, and he says, Brett, would you actually climb the highest mountain? And Brett says, probably not, no. <laughs> and then he says, but it's, it's a metaphor. And so Jermaine asks, well, what's it a metaphor for? And he answers, well, it's, it's a metaphor for, that I would do anything for her. And then Jermaine said, yeah, but would you climb the highest mountain for her? Well, no, no, I wouldn't. Uh, and he ends up writing a song called I Would Hang Out With You, such is, the, such is the love for his woman, Coco. The point I'm trying to, think here, uh, trying to make here is that actually the songs that we sing on a Sunday morning are really important to us. Here's some words that we sung this morning. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. When Satan tempts me to despair, upward I look. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? We sang that this morning. How do we avoid being lukewarm? We live out the words that we've sung every day in the week ahead. It's important that we sing these words and that we mean them, that the words that we sing here, the most important thing about them isn't that we hit the right note, it's that we go and, and put them into action in the week ahead. When things get tough, when we're tempted, upward we should look. When things are really hard and we're struggling, who, who can stop the Lord Almighty? That's why we sing them. They're the words that are put into our mouths that help us in the week ahead as well. And we need to mean them. And the danger here is that we can come to church on a Sunday and tell him it's all about him and that we're going to put our trust in him and then live every day with our trust firmly in our bank balance instead or our status at work or our own skills. And these are all things that God's blessed us with, but they're not the things that will save us. They're not the things that we're going to take with us. So to the lukewarm church, Jesus is clear. He doesn't want our lukewarmness, our half-hearted promises. He wants our all. Our passage continues too because the problem is then further diagnosed um, as to what the, the church in Laodicea is facing, the reason why they've become compromised and lukewarm in nature. And that too can help us understand it in our own context. So let me go back and read the next bit of the passage for us. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Again, this passage speaks directly into the culture that the Laodicean church was surrounded by. Remember our context. It's one of the wealthiest cities in the world. It's self-sufficient and it's proud. And that's what the church is seen as here too. The people are financially rich, but they've totally missed the point. They're called blind, poor. We can cross-reference it with a story out of the Gospels where Jesus talks about the rich entering the kingdom of God. In Mark 10, he puts it this way. Uh, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Again, it's a point made time and time in the Bible as we read through. If we see riches in financial terms only, then we've totally missed the point. The Laodiceans were blind about what it truly means to be rich. 
and they were instead called wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. And of course, this wasn't a physical nakedness, but a spiritual one. They were blind to the truths that they were singing about on a Sunday, blind to the gospel that was being preached to them about what really, truly matters in life. We had a bit of a big meltdown in our house this week. Uh, Emma's gone back to work now. She was off on maternity leave, but uh, we're all back at work now. And that has turned our mornings into a military operation. So we wake up, the alarm goes off about half five, six o'clock, and I've got to get these two over here, and that one goes there, and then we need to pick that one up from there, and I need to be at work by six o'clock, and it all gets kind of really, really complicated. So you can imagine, it's like a tornado going through our house, trying to get everything ready and everybody dressed, and you know, it's, uh, life has got incredibly busy in that sense. And so as per usual, we're running really late, and um, it's my turn to do the, the, the school drop-off. And so I'm saying, kids, find your coat, where's your shoes, put your shoes on, get ready. And one of my kids just refused to put her coat on. She's distraught. She's devastated. How dare I ask her to put her coat on, okay? How dare I? Didn't I know it would ruin the look? I mean, she's got the whole look going on. And besides, it wasn't even raining. Look out the window. It's not raining. And I was doing my best to reason. I was saying, yeah, but it's going to rain later, and it will be cold today, and you're out for a long time. No, I'm not wearing it. I refuse to wear it. We'd reached a standoff. And as I was reflecting on that, I kind of thought a little bit about this morning's message and thought about how often we do the same thing. Children are wonderful, and my children are wonderful, but they're great for sermon illustrations because they've got this kind of blind arrogance to the fact that they're right, and they think that they're right, and how often can we stand and do the same thing? We hit, we sing the songs on a Sunday, and then we hit our week, and the stubbornness kicks in. Faith is replaced by fear, and self-reliance seems like the sensible thing. Rather than relying on God this week, I should trust in myself. We know best, after all. It's not even raining. We can, we can take that attitude when it comes to the things that we're being taught on a Sunday morning, like we know what's really going on. Remember, at the very start of our passage this morning, Jesus says, I'm the truth, and I know your deeds. The point here for the Laodiceans and the point for us is that we're not being told these things by somebody who's unaware, someone who doesn't know what we're going through, but by one who knows us completely, who sees us at our best and at our worst. And the message to us is to open our eyes and to see the reality of the gospel that we believe in, to live it out. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Wednesday afternoon when we start struggling, who can stop the Lord Almighty? We need to believe it. Here's the really clever thing about this passage. It's the thing that I really love. English was the only thing that I was really good at when I was at school, languages, and I really love picking apart languages And this passage is full of some really helpful language for us. Because Jesus tells them the solution to their problem. And he specifically slays the three big industries in Laodicea uh, as he does it. Let me show you what I mean. So Laodicea is known as a rich place. Remember, it was known for its banking system. It had this vast banking system that was very well known. One of the wealthiest cities in the world. To that, Jesus says, "Buy buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich. You, Laodicea, are well known for your banking industry, but you don't need to rely on your banking industry. You need riches from me. And to those Laodiceans who find their identity in the town's famous textile industry, the original designer label, Jesus says we're to come to him for the white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. You guys, you think it's all about the designer label, but you've totally missed the point. You need to come and get these robes from me to cover your nakedness. And to that medical school industry, known for the ointment that it makes, all around the Roman Empire, they're well known for this uh, eye ointment. Jesus says, you don't need that ointment. 
that you make for yourself, but you need self to put on your eyes so that you can really see. And by that, he means to truly see the truth of the gospel that's been preached to them, the red-hot lives that they're being called to instead of their lukewarmness. I want you to see how clever and cutting these verses are. Laodicea was known for these three things. You said, what's Paul known for? You know, what's Laodicea known for? It's these three things. The eye ointment that was so well known, you'd have traveled for miles right across the Roman Empire. You needed to get to Laodicea if you had an eye problem. And to that culture, Jesus is saying, you're blind. You're not seeing the truth. Forget your medicine. Come to me so that you can truly see. See how clever that is. The church in Laodicea is full of consumers and they're being called to stop consuming and become servants for the gospel instead. It's full of people living worldly lives and they're being called to be worshippers of the true and living God instead. Stop worshipping the stuff that doesn't matter and start worshipping the only thing that does. At these points, I often think back to the Old Testament, to the stories we're told of the Israelites who turn away from God to worship golden statues. And sometimes I can catch myself thinking, how stupid is that? Golden statues. I mean, why, why on earth would they bow down to a bit of gold? It just strikes me as silly. And perhaps the church in Laodicea had fallen into the same trap as I'm tempted to from time to time. There's no golden statue, but they've bowed to industry. They've bowed to wealth. They've bowed to self-reliance. It's become the thing that they actually worship rather than worshipping God. We're very blessed in this church to have a good number of uh, hosiers. Uh, Matt Hosier's here week after week preaching. His dad actually was here a few weeks ago. And uh, John Hosier wrote a couple of really excellent books on the book of Revelation. And speaking about this passage, John wrote in one of his books, all of this sounds extraordinarily modern to us who live in a society obsessed with wealth, health, and appearance. This letter speaks to those that they feel like they've got it all together in those areas of their lives. They're able to live independently of God, but in reality, they're in spiritual poverty. And so, to us here this morning, I want to say again, what are you really worshipping? What are you really relying on in life? Is it money? or your appearance, or health. In the same way, the Laodicean church had become as compromised as their lukewarm, dirty water. In what areas of life do we find ourselves compromised? What are the big areas of of life in Poole, in BCP, in England, that represent those big industries in Laodicea? Is it money for us? Or sex? Or our status at work? Or the cars that we drive? I think it's an eminently modern problem We've surrounded ourselves with self-sufficiency to the extent that in the Western world, most of us can rely on ourselves, actually, day to day. For most of us, and I appreciate this might not be the case for everyone, but for most of us, there's a roof over our heads and food on the table and fuel in the car and entertainment on the TV. And there's a real danger that with all that, we can sleepwalk into lukewarmness. These good things can become God things if we're not careful to give our focus and attention to the one who made it all possible. The point here is that we need to root out that compromise, root out that self-reliance. Jesus is saying, come to me, where you'll find true riches, a new identity, everlasting life. When we're told to buy gold refined in fire, it's a call for us to think about where our riches truly lie. The only thing that should truly be at the center of your lives is Jesus. And your life should be centered around him and not the riches that the world has to offer. In Matthew 6, it's put this way, from verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, where you put your money, your efforts, your best, that's where your heart is. The call here is to not let the good stuff become God stuff. The call here is to keep running the race for Jesus, to put our worship of him first and foremost in our lives and to live our lives to his plans and not to our own and to treasure the gospel of Jesus above all else. It's actually a really hard one, I think, especially in the context of the last 18 months. We've lived through a pandemic that is actually, you know, for for the most part, ongoing. We've had all the anxiety and the frustration and the pain that it's brought. And I think we can trick ourselves to thinking that now's the time to take our foot off the pedal. Now's the time to give ourselves a bit of a break, to put our feet up for a bit, to sit the next couple of seasons out so that we can rest and recover. And please don't mishear me. I'm really not diminishing how hard this last season's been. For all of us, I don't think any of us ever would have foreseen a circumstance where churches were closed. But as Christians, we're not called to comfort, we're called to Jesus. So as you reevaluate life in the season ahead, my encouragement to you is to keep Jesus at the centre and to understand where true riches are. Now the temptation here is to read these verses and to think that the church is finished. They've been vomited out, they've been spat out because of their lukewarmness. They've been handed over to the fruits of their own self-reliance. But here's the beauty of the gospel. This correction isn't brought to them to punish them or to shame them, but out of love. Skipping back into our passage, verse 19 and 20. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. You see, the church is loved. The church is loved in spite of everything they've done, the folly of their own self-reliance. We're told that they're still loved and that the discipline and that the correction that's in this letter comes from a place of wanting to see them walk right. Verse 20 of our passage, I'm here, I stand at the door and knock. It's often quoted in the context of evangelism. Jesus is standing at the door of our hearts and knocking and those who open the door, who become Christians, will be welcomed into the family of God. And actually, that's certainly true. If you're, a Christian, if you're not a Christian here this morning, Jesus does welcome you to accept an invitation to know and love him. But actually, in the context of this passage, that's not all that's being said here, because the invitation is actually given to the church. For the church here, it's decision time. Jesus, the one who loves the church that he's speaking to, is standing and asking, will you continue in your own way of self-reliance? Are you okay with being lukewarm? Or do you want to jump all in and be red hot for me and for my plans and for my purposes? It's a knocking of the door who those who are spiritually sleepwalking, the church that Matt came and spoke about a couple of weeks ago. It's a knock on the door to those who are deluded into thinking that they've got this. We can do it our own way. It's for the people who've let the good things become the God things. Jesus is saying, wake up, I'm here. I'm the way to life, to God, to truth. Wake up and see where the riches truly lie. Take that self-made salve off your eyes and help me to let you truly see. The church there is being told, will you choose the way of vomiting or the way of feasting? How comforting is it that in spite of all that this church has done wrong, in spite of its stubbornness and self-reliance, Jesus still offers an invitation to them to repent. It's an invitation to love. And if you've been listening this morning and challenged perhaps by a little bit of self-reliance in your own life, 
for the worth that you perhaps have put on wealth or health or appearance instead of the gospel, then this invitation's for you. Jesus is knocking each one of us awake this morning. The words are being spoken to us. My question is, what's our answer? So that's the letter to the, the seventh church, Laodicea, in Revelation. And as we end our series on the seven churches in Revelation, how do we summarize all that we've heard? We've had letters to churches in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And they've given us a broad spectrum of commendations and corrections, praise and rebuke. We've heard of the cold-hearted church, the faithful church, the idolatrous church, the sleepwalking church, the weak church, and the lukewarm church. And this letter, in many ways, summarizes what we've heard across our seven-week series. It's a call to be all-in for Jesus, to be faithful to believe in Jesus as the only one worthy of our worship and praise, the root of compassion and grace, to wake up to the plans and purposes God has called us to, to to show strength and be red hot in our faith in him. The final verses in this morning's passage, verses 21 and 22, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The offer to these churches and the offer to Gateway Church this morning is victory through Jesus. See, Jesus was the one that paid the price on the cross to defeat sin and death and bring righteousness for those who believe. And our role is to wholeheartedly believe it, to believe the words that we sing on a Sunday and live our lives in meaningful fulfillment of the promises he's made to us and those that we make to him when we sing. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this can be true for you as well. I'd love to talk to you more about it at the end. And uh, if you've got any questions about anything that's been preached, then it'd be my pleasure to keep talking to you about it. Now, victory is a key, a key theme through the book of Revelation. Jesus having victory over the devil, the uh, call to overcome over the enemies of the world because Jesus has done it. If you want victory, you won't get it through the riches the world has to offer. If you want victory, you won't get it through the banking system. You won't get it through the eye ointment. You won't get it through the designer labels. Victory is through Jesus alone. And that is the big picture of what Revelation tells us. And it's something that we can share in as well. The very start of our passage this morning started with the words, I know your deeds. And those words are true for each of us this morning. God knows us. He knows us intimately. He knows our deeds. He knows what we've done this week. He knows what you're going to do next week. Our successes, our failures, the stuff you'd be ashamed of if anyone knew, the stuff that hurts. He knows it all, and his offer remains the same. Come to me. Come and grab that victory that's yours through me. Come and feast. It's an invitation to overcome the challenges and laws and temptations of the world. When Satan tempts me to despair, upward I look. That's what we sung. It's an invitation to overcome those challenges and to live for Jesus. To be witnesses, not to be worldly. This is an invitation to love. And the payment is our lives. To give up our worship and self-reliance in everything else. And to learn to put our trust all in for Jesus again. The letter ends in the same way that all the other letters have ended. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you've got ears, if you've been able to listen to this morning's message, then hear what the Spirit says to the churches. These words are for us 
to enact. So by response now, we're gonna, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to sing. And John and the band are going to help us sing. And my encouragement to you is to really think about these words that we're singing. Because our task isn't just to get the notes right today, but it's to turn them into action in the week ahead. That's how we avoid being lukewarm. We believe the words that we say, we believe the words that are written, and we believe the words that we sing. And we live them out day by day as we leave this building. Why don't you stand? I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll come back and sing. Lord, I want to thank you that through your son Jesus, the victory has been won. That the victory has been won. We already know the end of the story. You are victorious. And I thank you that the call for us is to live in the truth of it. To share in that victory. And I want to pray for each and every one of us this morning as we've opened up this letter, as we've heard what's been said to the church in Laodicea, I want to pray, Lord, that we would put down any sense of self-reliance, any sense of half-heartedness, any sense of lukewarmness. Lord, we want to be red hot for your plans and purposes. We want to live in the truth of that victory day to day, week to week. Pray for each one of us. You'd help to highlight now those areas where we need to bring correction, those areas where we're prone to self-reliance. Lord, we want to, we want to be all in for you. Lord, help us take the words of these songs that we're going to sing and live them out in the week ahead. In your name I pray. Amen.